0: 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. The title of this morning's message is The Humiliation of Christ. And we're going to be looking at one verse found there in chapter 8 of the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you will, look with me there at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now, the eighth chapter of Second Corinthians is is not about the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not. Uh, it's not a theological passage in terms of addressing. The, uh, the deity of Christ, the being of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, the work of Christ, the ministry of Christ, His earthly ministry, His ascension to the cross, His resurrection from the dead, His virgin birth. But encapsulated in this chapter is a beautiful picture of His self-giving. Now, the chapter itself speaks of that in terms of, of uh, a didactic passage for uh, for the Christian life concerning our giving, our giving to the work of the ministry, our giving to uh, other brothers and sisters in need, um, our handling of our finances in a general sense. Uh, chapter, chapter 8 here of Second Corinthians is really dealing with that. It's, it's, a, it's a, a chapter that deals with our, our financial matters. But wedged in this chapter is a little snapshot, a little glimpse of the self-giving of our Savior Jesus Christ. And we have found here a robust theology in and all of itself, self-contained right here in this one verse. And so although the chapter speaks to something else, in a larger picture, we have this beautiful reality of the self-giving of Christ. And that's the measure, right? That's why it's in this chapter dealing with finances and our giving and our handling of of uh, how we care for one another and give to one another and give to um, the, the work of the ministry. It sets the standard. It's, this is why this little picture of Christ self-giving is here in this context because that's the motivation of the Christian heart, right? We're to, we're to uh, uh, imitate Christ in that regard. In other words, the mark of love is really self-giving. Self-giving here is said in Scripture as the standard bearer, the mark by which we uh, determine love. How do you address address love? How do you assess love? By self-giving. So this morning, as we stand here, gathered here before a holy God justified, those of us who are in Christ gathered here as... Uh, the people of Word of Grace Baptist Church, we stand here this morning justified by the grace of Christ. Our sins washed away by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. And as we do so, we ponder so great a salvation. Every day we are to ponder so great a salvation. No no more uh, uh, is that brought to the forefront of our minds more readily, I I believe, than at Christmas time this season, uh, certainly that's to be our heartbeat every day that we wank up this side of glory. But certainly, Christmas time brings that reality to bear on us that we're to ponder that Christ would come down and save the likes of us. So let's consider the reality of Christ starting so high and humbling Himself to become one of us. No one ever started so high and descended as low as the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no comparison in any conscious state of being in our existence on this terrestrial ball. No one ever started so high and descended so low as Christ. No one ever left such wealth and took on such poverty as did Christ Christ and taking on human flesh. And no one ever was so spiritually impoverished and became so spiritually rich as the one who is redeemed through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. There is no greater treasure. There is no greater wealth. We started in absolute Spiritual poverty. Born of Adam, dead in our trespasses and sins. And now we have become joint heirs with Jesus Christ. God, our very God. The unique man, God man, King of kings, Lord of lords. And we have become recipients of his amazing grace. There is no greater gift, there is no greater reality of self-giving that God, a very God, would condescend to the likes of us that we might now be recipients of his salvation. So I want you to notice three truths here in these verses, or in this verse. The wealth of Christ, the impoverishment of Christ and the offering of Christ. First, I invite you to look with me at the wealth of Christ. Let's read there the first part of verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich... Now yes, Christ has ownership over all of our finances. That's true. We're stewards of all that He has uh, uh, given to us. So He is the owner of of Our finances we have our financial resources are just that they're resources that have been owned to us by our God. But this passage is not addressing the financial reality of His ownership over our resources, over our financial resources at this point in the text. The point here is His spiritual riches, the riches of His personhood, the glory of. Of who he is, the wealth and majesty and splendor of his attributes, his very character. That's what's being addressed here when we say, when the text tells us that he was rich, he was spiritually rich. The eternal majesty of his character is being expressed here. So Christ is infinitely rich because he is the second person of the triune Godhead. He is infinitely rich in majesty, splendor, glory. Colossians 1.16 puts it this way, For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. So part of His splendor is creation itself. As we sit here, we sit here as created beings in His creation. That is an overflow, an expression of His self-worth and majesty. Just a creative impulse that flows out of the the beauty and majesty and splendor of His very being. Creation itself is a rich reality of His attribute. His riches includes all of creation. Now, um, I was running, yes, yes. You got that right. I was running the other week, and I was a little late in my uh, scheduled running. That happens a few times throughout the week, and so it was. It was a nice, bright night, and I was leaving my neighborhood. So you have to kind of ascend out of my neighborhood, which is a, a dip, and ascend out to the backside of the neighborhood. And there's a nice little stretch across the, the backside of my neighborhood. And as I, as I was as I was kind of warming up and kind of getting started into the jog, I was going through there, just kind of enjoying all the beauty. It was quiet. And, you know, the nativity scenes will be sitting out in people's yards. So I was kind of just enjoying that. And I came across one that was, uh, it was a wooden carved out nativity scene and it had the light, you know, how they put the light out front in something and it was shining right on. So it was beautiful. I just captured it just, just perfectly. The, the shadows were perfect. And so it was a nice, beautiful shot. And as I looked there, my eyes just lifted. There's a, there's a tree line behind the house. And along there, right along the tree line there, the, the starry sky was beautiful. It was just brilliant. And so I could see Polaris. I could see, I could see Ursa Minor. I could see Ursa Major. I could see Casalapia right there, just all stringing together. And it just hit me that moment, that beautiful little, little picture that I got that night as I was beginning to labor through my run. There's a nativity scene. And then there's this beauty of creation. And it struck my mind that this glorious God who has created all these constellations that I now can see who has created me, who has created this little street that I'm running along, this gravity that's holding me back. And now that I can see this little, nice little uh, nativity scene that He's given to me this night to just treasure, reminding me that this God condescended and entered into the world as a little babe through the virgin birth, that I might have salvation. That is a rich, rich reality of a glorious God who is rich in majesty and yet would condescend to such depths to save sinners. Creation is part of His riches and He is deity. He is the God who has created. He uh, possesses supreme glory. He is the eternal Son of God. He is rich in glory, rich in honor, majesty, holiness, righteousness, sovereignty. So when we think about this term rich, rich here in this text it's a metaphor, right? Metaphor is, is a, It's a metaphor that captures the sum total of all His attributes. All of His character, all of the glory and splendor of His character is kind of summed up in the fact that He is rich. He is spiritually rich. Every dimension of the splendor of His being is rich in spiritual worth. And we see the richness of His being illustrated, I believe, most poignantly in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 Verses 1 through 6. Listen to the language here. Now the context, beginning in verse 1, is the year of King Uzziah and he's died. And King Uzziah was a stabilizing force there in Israel in that day. And now the king is gone. The throne is vacated. And Isaiah goes in to the temple. And there he says, as he's pondering, what will we do next? He says, I saw... The Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. With a train of his robe feeling the temple, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So when Isaiah enters the temple, pondering what next, he sees Christ. John 12 tells us just that, right? Speaking back, pointing back to Isaiah there in John 12, and it says that he saw the glory of Christ and he spoke about it. So he's looking at Christ. And it says here that he is... He saw him sitting on a throne that' sovereignty, and that he was lofty, lofty and exalted. that speaks of his transcendence. And the richness of his worth is, is important to us, and that it's found in his transcendence. He transcends. We can't reach God. Then he was talking about that this morning and the efforts of religion, the religions of man. There's always the effort to try to attain our way to God, to climb that stairway to heaven. But we can't reach God. He transcends us. Yet He is imminent. Because here we see He has descended down to the temple. We can't reach God, but God condescends down to us. That's how rich He is. He's far beyond us, but He has the capacity, the right, and the heart, and the love to condescend to the likes of us. And so He sees Him here lofty at speaking of His transcendence. He's lifted up. He's exalted. He's towering over the nations here in this imagery. And the train of His robe fills the temple. Now the train of the king's robe in that age really speaks to His worth, right? Long train, lots of worth. And here the train of Christ's robe in imagery fills the temple. His worth is uncalculable. It speaks of His infinite glory. His unrivaled majesty. And then in verse 2, we see here the seraphim and really they're literally called the burning ones because they burn with intense passion to glorify their God. That's their purpose of existence. That's why they were created. The seraphim are the burning ones. Burning with passionate, white heart passion to bring glory where it rightly belongs to the King of Kings. They have six wings. Two cover their uh, Face because they cannot stand to see the holiness of God. They cannot even stand to be in His presence. To cover their feet, they recognize their unworthiness to even be in His presence. And with two, they flew because they were ready, eager, waiting to get their marching orders and to and, and to obey their king to do their Lord's bidding. And one cried out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The thrice holy God there, pictured in this worship of the seraphim. And just to look on His riches, the riches, the excellencies of Christ, caused Isaiah to melt within. Listen to his language here. He sees this picture. He sees the adoration of the seraphim. He sees the exalted worth of his king. And he says, woe is me. I am ruined. He just withers in his inner man. You see, Isaiah here has caught a glimpse of the glory and majesty of Christ, if you will. He's caught a glimpse of his riches. And it's caused him to just wither. Isaiah 6-9, we just read earlier this morning, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So this is who Isaiah is looking at in the temple this one who will be born into us. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor because he is rich in wisdom. He is rich in knowledge, rich in understanding. He is the giver of perfect truth in all situations, all the time, every time. Perfect truth. He will be called Mighty God because he is rich indeed. He is rich in. Deity. He is the second person of the triune Godhead. He is eternal God. Colossians 2 9. For in him all the fullness of 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 deity dwells in bodily form. And he will be called eternal Father. That is to say, he will be eternally a father, a perfect father figure to his people because he is rich in love and mercy, rich in grace. And fatherly love will flow to his children. with infinite wealth and majesty. And He is the Prince of Peace. He is rich in peace. He fills His people with the peace of God that passes all understanding. No matter the circumstances, no matter the struggles of life, no matter the issues that we face, He is the Prince of Peace. And He gives us peace that passes all understanding. And He is rich in salvation. And that He brings us into a relationship of peace with our God. Most importantly, He declares us right before a holy God. And He does this through the accomplishment of His cross. He is the giver of peace in every circumstance of our lives. But what superintends that is the reality that He grants us peace with God. Where we were alienated from God wicked in our deeds, deserving the white-hot righteous wrath of Almighty God, the Son of God has now condescended to grant us salvation. He has taken our sin upon His body there on the cross, bearing our sin debt before Holy God, and imputing His righteousness earned under the law into our account, thereby thereby making us justified before a holy God, thereby making us right in right relationship with holy God, thereby making peace between sinful man and holy God. He is indeed the Prince of Peace. The wealth of Christ is the infinite richness of the glory of His character. And that God has condescended to sinful man, to you and to me. So next I want to bring our attention to His impoverishment, the impoverishment of Christ. As the verse continues, it says, yet for your sake He became poor. So seeing us in our sin, alienated from God, without hope in and of ourselves, Christ emptied Himself of infinite glory. That is to say, He became poor, spiritually speaking. Now again, this is not a material poverty, although He lived um, a somewhat meager life. Now He certainly didn't live as impoverished in His earthly ministry as He could have. Uh, His earthly ministry was funded uh, to to a great degree. Uh, Again, he didn't live as a a plush king of the earth um, in terms of of what we see through some human kings. But as the unique God-man, he did live uh, in somewhat uh, poverty, but not extremely impoverished. So it's not talking about Material poverty here when we're thinking about the impoverishment of Christ. We're talking about the spiritual poverty of His incarnation. That is to say, His self-humiliation. The coming in to this world. the, the, The laying aside of the independent exercise of all His attributes. That is what has transpired and the coming of Christ. When Christ has come down, He has voluntarily laid aside the independent exercise of all His attributes. That is to say, when He comes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and He's anguishing before the Father and all His human nature, and the fullness of His human nature, and He's anguishing over becoming sin on our behalf. And He's begging in all the human capacity that He has. If there's some way, although in His human conscious mind, knowing there is no other way, if there was some way, it's just an emotional anguish, if there were some way that this cup could pass from me, oh, the thought of that in my human capacity. But Father, Your will be done, not mine because He's going to the cross. And there, the white-hot, righteous wrath of God the Father will be poured out on Him fully for every sin of every believer in Christ. Every sin that we've ever committed or will commit will be eternally poured out on our Savior, or was eternally poured out on our Savior at the cross. Eternally speaking, every sin that you and I commit, the Father's wrath for that sin is eternally poured out on the Son at the cross. Everyone. And there He bears the sin debt of His people and imputes His righteousness into their account that He is earned under the law, born a virgin, burned under the law. So He has lived perfectly under the law of God and imputes that perfect, righteous life into our account that we stand now declared justified before a holy God, leaving God the just and that He will not overlook sin. He will punish all sin and the justifier of those who are in Christ. So you see here, when that transpired, the reality is He could have called down legions of angels to come to His rescue. He could have. And He had every right to. It was His his, uh, uh, right. He had the prerogative to do so. Every right. And he voluntarily laid the exercise of those attributes aside. They were veiled, if you will. They were covered. So although he had access to do so, he chose otherwise. He came by a virgin birth in the form of a bondservant. That was why he came. But when the fullness of time came, he was sent forth, uh, excuse me, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So he makes himself a bondservant to the law, that there he will live perfectly under the law, so that his life, his perfect life, can be credited to us. So why the virgin birth? Why Why the virgin birth? Because there, the Son of God becomes fully man. And that the Holy Spirit of God bursts uh, uh, the the Christ into the Virgin uh, Mary, into her womb. So there he's fully man, but fully man without taking on the sin debt of Adam. So there he can become fully man, identify with humanity, and yet live a perfect life under the law, that his righteousness can be imputed to our account, so that we may have the forgiveness and hope of salvation born about through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. He came as a bondservant. Hebrews 2, 7 and 9 says this, Speaking of the Christ and God the Father's ascending uh, Him, You have made Him for a little while, that is the Christ, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned Him with glory and honor, and you have appointed Him over the works of your hands." you have put all things in subjection under his feet for in subjection all things to him for in subjecting all things to him he left nothing that is not subjected to him but now we do not see all the things subjected to him it's not evident to us now he's taken on flesh he has all the fullness of His attributes at His fingertips. All the fullness of the glory of heaven are at His fingertips. But He has chosen to veil them. He has chosen to lay them aside for His ministry among men. Philippians 2.6, speaking of Christ, who although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is the height of impoverishment. That is the height of self-giving. That Holy God would condescend to us in such a manner. He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, uh, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses will come to my door and they'll they'll turn to this verse in Scripture and say, See? See there? he He didn't see equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's not God. He's a first creation of God. Well, funny, in context there, that language is talking about uh, humility. And let me tell you this. One thing I know. For any creature to not claim equality with God is not humility. That's expected. We don't have the right to claim equality with God because we're not God. There's nothing, hum- there's nothing uh, humbling about that. But why this is in a context of humility is because He is God. And He laid aside His prerogative to use every aspect of His attributes to take on flesh and to go to the cross and make atonement for His people. Now, He did not give up His deity. Let's stay on track here. That is not what has happened in His incarnation. He did not give up His deity. He did not give up His glory. He willingly veiled His glory. Those are two different things. None of His glory has been given up. It's just been veiled. It's been voluntarily put aside. He remained holy God. The entire time He was here on earth. But He voluntarily chose not to exercise all His privileges, all His prerogative that that remained with Him as God. That's what's transpired in the incarnation. Now, He never divested Himself of deity, but He became so very poor, spiritually impoverished, that He took on human weakness, human frailty, and human limitation. And all of His earthly ministry, we see this. We see He thirsts. We see He hungers. We see He gets tired. We see He anguishes. We see the height of that in the garden where He anguishes with what's going to transpire in His real human life in real space and time. And then He ascends the cross and suffers all the physical anguish and pain but more profoundly suffers the righteous wrath of God being poured out on the Holy One where He becomes sin for us that we might be declared righteous before God. That is the height of spiritual impoverishment. And Christ in His self given has taken that on for you and for me. That's the heartbeat of Christmas. That's the depth of His spiritual poverty. So He left glory in order to come into this fallen world and to ascend to the cross, becoming sin on behalf of His people. He went to the cross for us and He died for our sins. There He bore the wrath of God. That is the depth of spiritual depravity. That is the impoverishment of Christ. And finally, I want you to see tied up in that is the offering of Christ. Look where at the end of the the, uh, verse. Yet for your sake He became poor so that you through His poverty might become rich. So now, I, I need not explain this, but just to be careful here, we're not talking about the prosperity gospel, right? No, we're not. Far from it. So this is not dealing with uh, 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 material prosperity. It's not a prosperity gospel language here. This is not the indulging of one's flesh on tawdry things of this world that, will, that have no eternal value, that will fizzle away and be meaningless. These things that mock the very Word of God and, and focusing our attention on material goods and, and trying to attach some kindness of God uh, to it in terms of this is the heartbeat of who we are. This is the, the, the desire of our hearts. This is God's desire for us that we have material wealth and flaunt it and, 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 and obsess over it. Far from the truth of God's Word. This is something far greater than any uh, dishonorable prosperity gospel or notion of, of such a thing here. And this is the reality of God, <clears throat> uh, God uh, of God assuming our sin debt, of taking it on himself. And that's how spiritually poor he became, that he actually became sin for us. So He paid our penalty, the penalty of our sin debt, and He imputed the riches of His righteousness to us. That's the great exchange. And there is no greater exchange here. This is not an exchange of His emptying Himself or divesting Himself of the willful exercise of all His attributes as He takes on human flesh so that He might grant us a few trinkets of gold or silver to obsess upon in the frailties of this world now he 's divested himself of the exercise the full exercise of all his attributes for the purpose of becoming sin on our behalf that he might impute his righteous life into our account they 're making that great exchange on the cross of calvary there in his spiritual impoverishment. Um, paying our sin debt, bearing our sin debt before a holy God and imputing His righteousness into our account. His giving us the riches of His righteousness and declaring us justified before a holy God. Now that is the vast blessing of salvation that we find in the offering of Christ, the great exchange, that is his offering. When we think about the coming of the uh, of the Christ child this season, and rightly so in all the beauty and all all the wonder and all the splendor of the virgin birth, it culminates at the cross. He came to die as a savior. That's uh, uh, that's the great irony, right? That's the beauty of it. The small child, the virgin uh, the virgin birth, came for the purpose of dying as Savior on the cross. That there He might justify His people before a holy God. It's Ephesians 1.3. The Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's His offering. His offering is a blessing to us, a blessing of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, can, can we try to take on what, and try to fathom, and try to ponder exactly all that that means? I and mean, we have all eternity to work on this, to try to begin to wrap our minds around the fullness of that reality. But let's just, let's just for this morning, start at a few basic i just address a few basic realities. That's enough to just hang our hat on and rejoice and praise Him till He comes for us. So what has happened here in this vast blessing of salvation? Well, He has atoned for us. He has atoned for us. Christ has satisfied divine justice through His sufferings and death on the cross on our behalf. He has atoned for us. He has justified us. That is to say, He has forgiven us and He treats us as if we have never sinned. Amen, somebody? What can we do with that? What can you do with such a Savior? Just from the time I got up this morning until I came here, I can't ponder that kind of grace. He treats me as if I do not sin. That's our relationship. And He sanctified us. He sanctified us. He's made us holy in heart and conduct. We talked about that this morning. You know, what, uh, what's the evidence uh, of a, a genuine Christian? There's lots of prof- people that profess Christianity. What's the evidence? What's to change life? And we talked about that even some of the externals can still be there, be present. But the reality is God sanctified us. Those whom He has saved, He sanctifies Now, there is the the, the both and, the now and not yet. Uh, We're saved and we're continuing to be saved until Christ comes for us. Those both are true two realities that we hold uh, theologically. So there's there's an ongoing sanctification process. We're growing and maturing in our faith. But all that while, He has made us. We are acting as those who have been made holy in heart and conduct. So it's not just the externals. There's the heart change. There's the heart transplant. There's the heart being, the old heart of stone being taken out and the heart of flesh being put in. There's the transformed life. That's what He does for us. That's His offering. We're atoned for. We're justified. We're sanctified. We're set apart from this fallen world. We're set apart unto Him. First Peter one four. The Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Second Peter one four. Partakers of the divine nature. We're set apart for. We're set apart in Him. And we're set apart as divine, partakers of the divine. We're partakers of the divine nature. We're given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells us. We're given a new heart. We have a heart transplant. We're given a new mind. What mind is that? The mind of Christ. If you sit here as a blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ, you have the mind of Christ. As you go forth and the the things of this world hit you and and the circumstances and the situations hit you in life, in every situation, in every circumstance, in every need, in every discouragement, you have the mind of Christ. You have the indwelling Spirit residing within you. God Almighty has taken up residence within you. The Holy Spirit indwells you, leading you and encouraging you and strengthening you in your Christian walk in this life. You have a new heart that beats for the glory of God. That's the offering of Christ on your behalf. And you have a glorious future. Amen? You have a glorious future leading to eternal glory in heaven. And in heaven... You're co-heirs with Christ. Literally, you're co-heirs with Christ at the point of your conversion. And in heaven, it's just lived out in a glorious state that's ever more increasingly glorious and free from the struggle of sin. And your inheritance there is Christ Himself. Do you see that? When we talk about the glorious things that will be in heaven, and, they, and they'll be there, and they'll be glorious. But they will not be central to you. The fact that you will see Christ, that you will be with Him, that you will speak with Him, that you will hear from Him. That's your inheritance in heaven. That's an ever increasing, glorious inheritance. That's His offering that He makes on your behalf. That's the manifestation, the overflow of His offering for you. Now, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That was our state. When we come into this world, we come into this world sinners. We're in Adam. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins. We have no hope in and of ourselves. There's no way to make ourselves right with the Holy God. There's nothing we can do. But now, we have eternal riches of Christ granted to us. Eternal riches. Everlasting riches are granted to you. In Christ, now certainly, again, we are co-heirs with Him now, and that's, that's, a, that's a, a beautiful reality. Actually, let me just turn turn with me to John, if you will. Let me just turn to John. I want to read you something, or um, I'm sorry, not John. Romans. Listen to this Romans 5, 17 for if by the transgression of the one, that's Adam. Death reigned through the One. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the One, Jesus Christ. So you're reigning with Him. You're a co-heir with Christ. And He is your promised inheritance. You're not only a co-heir with Christ, He is your very promised inheritance that is fulfilled uh, infinitely, gloriously fulfilled in heaven where there you'll continually over and over and over be given capacity to know Him and love Him and adore Him and worship Him all the more. When you think you've just run out of capacity to to give Him glory, He gives you capacity to praise Him all the more. That is your future hope. That is your future inheritance. So I say to you this morning, we are the richer than the kings, the richest kings of this world. Right here in this building, in this little place, right here in this little corner of the world, Wilkesboro, North Carolina, sitting in this little building. If you're here and you are in Christ, you are richer than the richest kings of this world. For your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, has entered Himself. He has condescended to this world. And He has done so for you. He has left the riches of glory, laid aside the, the full exercise of His attributes, taken on human flesh and frailty and weakness, and bore the white, hot, righteous wrath of the Father at the cross on your behalf to make offering for you the offering of Himself, that you might be justified before a holy God. If you're here this morning in Christ, you are richer than any king that's ever walked the face of this earth. Far, far richer. Your sin, your sin struggle, it can't separate you from your inheritance. Your discouragement, your difficulties, your failures, your frailty, your doubt, your discouragement, your uncertainty, Your impulsiveness, your weakness, none of that can separate you from your inheritance in Christ. All of those things, all your needs, all your discouragement, all of it has been overcome with the riches of Christ that have been imputed into your account. He becomes one with us. He lived perfectly under the law. He kept the law and now He imputes His righteousness to us. He ascended the cross to make us recipients of His vast inheritance. So this morning as we ponder the riches of Christ, the impoverishment of Christ, and the offering of Christ, this Christmas season, I ask you to do just that. That's the application You meditate on just that. How rich is He? And how poor did He become? How rich have we become in Christ? There's you some Christmas pondering how rich He is, how rich He is, and how poor He became, and how rich you are in Christ you are the most blessed people on this planet. Sitting right here this morning. If you are here in Christ, you are the most blessed people on this planet. What a Savior. How could God condescend to the likes of us? What a Savior. No one is more blessed than those who are found in the grace and forgiveness of Christ alone. If that is you this morning, praise Him and ponder the richness and the impoverishment and the offering of Christ. If you're here this morning, you're outside of Christ, that's your hope. There is no other hope in this world. There's one hope, and it's the glorious Savior. And this season is when we really hone in on that reality that God Almighty really came down and made a way that sinful man can be made right with holy God. That's your hope. How do, you, how do you access the riches of Christ? Well, you confess your sin, you confess your your your, uh, your frailty, your sin, uh, your your separation from a holy God, and your need for a Savior. And you take the empty hand of faith and lay hold of forgiveness and hope that is offered in Christ. That's the beauty of the Christmas even of the Christmas season, a Savior. Has come. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for uh, this little verse here. that's wedged into this this chapter about giving, Christian giving, and oh, our Savior is the ultimate example. But far beyond that, He is indeed a Savior. And there is none like Christ, and so we we thank you this morning that. Um, that you and your infinite sovereignty have chosen to glorify yourself through the salvation of sinners and the person and work of Jesus Christ, we thank you that um, the Son, who was rich in all majesty of heaven, all of heaven at His disposal, has chosen to come down, wrap Himself in the flesh, and ascend the cross to there via via vicarious death on behalf of His people that we might be declared righteous in Christ, our sins forgiven and made, and made justified, declared holy before a holy God. That we might have the fullest of all inheritances, that is the inheritance of Christ that is everlasting, granted to us by Your sovereign grace. What a Savior. What a God. Thank You. We praise You in Christ's name. We thank You for the virgin birth of our dear Savior, that of the sin of the cross, that we might have hope and salvation. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.